0: if you could turn with us in your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And as we prepare to get into Revelation, chapter 12, boy, this is where it gets pretty deep in a big-time hurry. But don't despair. There, believe it or not, is a wonderful way to approach the book of Revelation with clarity. And, And that shocks and surprises some people. We were talking earlier on a reason for hope. Uh, about uh, people that say things like, "Uh, well, this is what this verse means to me. You ever heard that in a a Bible study that you sat in on? There's a fundamental flaw in that thinking, not that we don't want people to uh, say, well, this verse was meaningful to me and how I applied it, but there's this underlying thought that the Bible is, well, for lack of a better term, kind of like an inkblot test, that uh, you can look into it and one person will see one thing and another person will see another. And uh, it's all just how you look at it. Well, there's this fundamental flaw in that. Uh, When people say, this is what this verse means to me, I really don't care what that verse means to them. And if I were to say to you, this is what Revelation 12 means to me, You shouldn't care what I have to say about that. What really matters is what God has to say about it. What is God's intended meaning for a passage like the one we're going to be exploring tonight? And, you know, it's fascinating to me that this book of prophecy that we are studying isn't called the book of cover-ups. No, in the original language, maybe you've heard of it referred to as the Apocalypse of John. That word literally in the Greek means the unveiling. God doesn't want to conceal truth from us. He wants to reveal truth to us. And that's all well and good until we start exploring a piece of uh, prophecy like Revelation chapter 12 that, quite frankly, is a little bit intimidating to a lot of people. Why? Because it's symbolic. Boy, we start getting involved with symbols, and people start freaking out, and people go, oh, you know, know." that's why uh, we we never teach uh, the, the, the book of Revelation. Now, Sean, why are so many people afraid to teach through the book of Revelation?
1: Well, along with alternate options, which if you've been through us for the last couple of months, you know that we've been very transparent about taking others' views seriously enough to at least mention so that you can sort through them on your own time. But what's also concerning about the book of Revelation for a lot of people is that, as you said, you get into not just symbolic sections, sections, excuse me, of Scripture, but Scripture itself. They see the words Bible on the cover, and they think they have to treat this book differently than they would any other book, and that unfortunately is not the case. Now, granted, there should be some reference for the source of this material, but the Bible, first of all, isn't a book. It's 66 books, all affirming, verifying, and supporting one another with one cohesive goal in mind, to reveal to us the nature of the God of Israel and how we can relate to him.
0: So in a real sense, the entire Bible is the book of Revelation, because it's intended by God to reveal his nature to us.
1: But if on the other hand, we get intimidated by that fact and say, well, uh, I, I, I better put on my special, you know, Bible reading gloves and wear these glasses so that I can see it from these bizarre angles that I hear about on TV. No, it's all presented in as plain language as is possible for someone who's coming to it informed. And by informed, we don't mean that you're specially anointed or you have a pastor, uh, you know, ordination or whatever, a seminary degree. You are willing to treat this text as you would any other series of text. And if there's been 65 books before this, with the intention of affirming these things, then hopefully that will play a role in your reading of it. But there's another obstacle, and that is Hollyweird. There's a lot of ways that there's presenting, you know, spiritual themes and apocalyptic interpretations. We uh, were talking on the way to church about how certain pastors don't promote TV shows that are becoming popular in the presentation even of gospel accounts. And the reality is because in the screenplay process, there will inevitably be a mucking up of the plain presentation of the events. And while we do give the thumbs up to movies that have been straightforward with that, Prince of Egypt is an example. They say, hey, read the original. This isn't the actual story. This is a
0: cartoon. Yes.
1: But also in other cases, if they say, no, this is as close to the real deal as you're going to get, well, that can be a little misleading. Or a lot misleading, as the case may be. That's why we're not recommending that. But the point being made is that if we come to the text not only with prior assumptions, but prior influences, that can make things difficult. If we come to the text with a fear and an unwillingness to take it at face value, that can make things difficult. And if we just come to the text ignorantly, we're like, what verse of the Bible am I going to read today? I am going to go take a shower. That's uh, that's confusing. Yeah, or
0: or the uh, this is what this means to me. This is just kind of what hit me
1: when I was, was reading it. So in any study of the Bible, our goal will be to avoid those things, to take this text at face value and hopefully to use a morbid illustration of a minefield, notice where people made mistakes before us and not step there again. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to be tap dancing in the minefield. You know, I read a fascinating article
0: uh, while I was preparing and going over uh, our, our notes here. It, it was written by Tom Hughes of uh, Hope for Our Time Ministries uh, on uh, the harbinger.com uh, uh, website. It's a really great kind of news aggregate on uh, biblical events. But he had a really interesting article about five reasons why pastors don't teach Bible prophecy, five reasons why uh, the, the, the book of Revelation in a lot of churches is a closed book. He said, number one, because pastors don't understand it, they feel like it's overwhelming to them. Uh, Number two was uh, that it will only make people scared if you teach the book of Revelation. Number three, you might offend people if they take different views on this subject. But I I liked uh, uh, numbers four and five the best. Number four reason that uh, Pastor Hughes discovered as far as why pastors don't teach is they're worried that if people actually believe Jesus is coming back soon, that they will fail to tithe properly and offerings will go down, uh, which struck me as a little odd. And then number five, and this is a big one, uh, the minute you start talking about Jesus coming back soon, you know, our culture has consigned that to the crazy guy with a long beard and the sandwich sign saying the end is near. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you don't want to look like a Looney Tune, you want to make sure that you are sophisticated in your version of Christianity, you tend to stay away from biblical prophecy. So there's a lot of reasons why biblical prophecy doesn't get much uh, uh, viewing in our day and age. And I think that's incredibly ironic, especially in light of the signs of the times that we're in. But I think one of the reasons is you can read through the book of Revelation, then you get to chapter 12, and you do get into some challenging passages uh, of Scripture, right? Uh, You know, again, how can we approach this passage, which is symbolic? I mean, there's no doubt about it, and not get lost in the process.
1: Start? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Revelation 12 and verse 1, now a great sign in heaven, or appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland, another word for a tiara, of 12 stars, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Okay,
0: so here we see, first of all, are we dealing with something literal here?
1: A great sign appeared in heaven. Evidently not. The sign is not the destination. It's pointing you towards it.
0: Okay. And what is this sign all about? Can you break that down for us?
1: Well, I guess in each element, we can ask two important questions and in interpreting it as is the rule in reading anything at the end of a book or a series of books in this case. Has it been mentioned before? As far as this element is concerned, and is this explained later? Let's just limit it to the chapter because most of these, with the with two exceptions, I think, are self-contained in the explanation. Revelation is very good about explaining new terms and also kind of being not so subtle, referencing old.
0: Yeah, one of the 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 things that we really want to emphasize to you in your study of the book of Revelation is that uh, when we come across a symbol or something that seems obscure to us. At, at first glance. Either it's something that is pointing back to an Old Testament reference that can explain this reference we find in the book of Revelation. It is possible that it is something that will be explained later on in future chapters. But in the case of Revelation chapter 12, which I really love, is that so much of it is actually explained in the chapter itself. So if we don't throw up our hands and go, oh my gosh, a great saw a woman cloaked with the the moon on her feet, I had a child to cry about them, and then this dragon comes out and wants to eat the baby, and ah! yeah. if we don't freak out, we can take this a step at a time and
1: really understand what this is all about. So starting with the first element, a woman. Okay, who is the woman? Well, we aren't given names or identities. Some have done that work for us, but let's ask the question. Has a woman ever been mentioned in Scripture? A A few times, yeah. (laughs) We'd need to narrow it down a bit. And of course, in the context of a sign or a vision, that would be doubly helpful. Because if it's explained in that sense, that would really reinforce the setting we have here. In other words, is
0: there a precedent where a woman is used in a symbolic sense already in the
1: Word of God? And does that carry over? Since we don't have a direct example right now, at least as far as the information we have, a woman, let's keep reading. The second element was that she was clothed with the sun, she had the moon under her feet, and her crown had 12 stars. Now, again... Is that mentioned in scripture? I think it is. Verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> in the book of Genesis chapter 37 and verse 9, the context of this, for those of you taking notes, is Joseph has had uh, one of his famous dreams, the first of which was regarding sheaves of wheat, but the second was regarding 11 stars, with him assumingly being one of them, and the sun and the moon. Let me read it. He dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. Not wise, but nonetheless. And he said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Here comes the explanation. Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down and bow to the earth before you? His brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, that should suffice, but let's keep asking the question just to fill out our spreadsheet. Is this explained later in the chapter? No. In fact, in reference to the woman's clothing and accessories, that's never mentioned again.
0: Right. Right.
1: So whatever the reason was for John to be shown this woman in this way, once was enough to suffice the point. So what was our conclusion? Noting this point, Israel, (laughs) Jacob, explained the vision when Joseph first had it. And when John quotes it again, it doesn't clarify anything. Therefore, it should probably be taken the same way. Israel, or Jacob, his mother, Rachel, and, or his mother, his wife, Rachel, and his 12 brothers, the composite nation of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, those are referenced should we continue to use them? Yes, because we're not told otherwise. Now, if you infer something into the passage, if someone says, well, this can't mean that because God's forsaken his people, or we hate Jews or something like that, that's your problem. Yeah. But it's not the text point.
0: Yeah, and and the, the interesting thing about this is, here we see another example of this. How do we understand the last book of the Bible? You have to go back to the first book of the Bible to understand it, Correct. That would be reasonable. Yeah, and, and, and so that's why, you know, it, it, we use this analogy a number of times, but it bears repeating. Uh, to try to understand the book of Revelation, just jumping in, you know, cold turkey, jumping in the deep end, so to speak. The reason I think it throws so many people uh, isn't hard to understand. It would be like uh, jumping into the end of a Agatha Christie mystery novel in the last chapter, you're going, why would the butler kill somebody? I don't get it. You know, but you've got all of these details that went before it. And so really important to understand, one of the reasons I think that so many people have a hard time with the 66th book of the Bible is because they're not really tracking with the previous 65. Uh, Saw a a fascinating uh, study that was done by the American Bible Society that uh, measured uh, the the incidence of people reading their Bible, uh, being uh, characterized as Bible readers, regular Bible readers, and they set the bar really low. It, uh, to be a, a regular Bible reader, it means you had to have read the Bible uh, four times in the last year outside of church. Okay, so very low threshold here. Uh, the The shocking results of this latest study uh, indicated that only forty. Eight percent of Americans passed that threshold, and that it had declined by almost uh, 20 percent in the last 20 years. Uh, According to their survey, millennials, uh, over 70 percent said that the Bible was either irrelevant or non-understandable, but it wasn't an important part of their life.
1: In all fairness, those are the kind of millennials that responded to surveys, but the point (laughs) still stands. Yeah, so... The the, the bottom line is, uh, I think a lot of reasons there's confusion
0: about Bible prophecy uh, is, in a sense, prophetic. Because I always wondered, okay, if the Bible is so clear about the last days and the end times and what people can expect, how could people possibly miss out on the rapture when Israel's back in the land? Or how in the world could people be so gullible as to take the mark of the beast after the Bible speaks so clearly about these sort of things. Well, if you're never reading your Bible, that's a big problem. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says the reason people will fall for the Antichrist in the last days is because they did not receive what? The
1: love of the truth.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely key. So, you know, if you don't love truth, I think Kierkegaard once said you can't know it, so you got to be a truth lover to be able to dig into all of this. As we've seen, you got to understand the book of Genesis before you're going to understand this reference in Revelation.
1: And if you're not going to listen to anything apart from what's handed to you by Hollywood, you're going to be lost okay. or just ignoring it.
0: Okay, so there's lots of different views about this symbolism that we see here. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of 12 stars. We can determine from uh, Genesis chapter 37, this is referring to Israel. But then it says, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth.
1: Okay, she's in the middle of labor. What does that mean? Well, ask the same questions. Is uh, labor ever described in Scripture, maybe in the context of a vision, maybe in general? Yes. Uh, Prophetically, we have an example in Matthew 24, 4 through 8, where Jesus compared it to the frequency and intensity of false teachers, wars, and natural disasters coming on the world. Like labor pains, yeah. yeah. As far as applying that to the nation of Israel... Maybe, but there's other options. In Romans 8.22, it describes the fallout of mankind's separation from God, that all of creation thrones and levayers with birth pangs until now. In 1 Thessalonians five three, it discusses the suddenness and the intensity and drama that will surround the coming of the Lord. And in Psalm 48 and verse 6, Isaiah 21 and verse 3, and plenty of other places, it's used to describe people's reactions to the judgment of God in general. So not a lot of common features, maybe in regards to the judgment of God, maybe in regards to the end times, but not enough, like with the woman, for us to narrow down something specific. We do have a lot with the moon, sun, and 12 stars, but we don't have enough to conclude that if we're just going off of previous scriptures. So what should we do? We should probably keep reading. Obviously, childbirth's going to involve a child, eventually, but what specifically hopefully the passage will continue to tell us because the passages we've read before this don't help and for those who are taking notes the explanations given to us in verse five which we'll be in in a moment
0: yeah okay so we've established this pattern that we can take a look either at the chapter that we're in for further information or we can look back to other scriptures and get further information and clarity on these particular issues. I guess the, the question then comes up, if this is our pattern of interpretation, does it really hold up through the rest of the section of Scripture we're in? Does it provide the clarity we're talking about? Or are we just sort of uh, giving you guys a bunch of hype here tonight? So let's continue and see if we can apply this in verses 3 through 4. Uh, it says this, and another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Well, I think that's probably enough to chew on here for a minute. Sean, this great sign appears, a great fiery red dragon. Dragon. How can we use the
1: Bible to interpret the Bible and come to an identity on this? Has it been mentioned before, and is it about to be explained? As far as a fiery red dragon is concerned, dragon just means terrible lizard, generally something dangerous and reptilian. But the picture obviously isn't something we can narrow down in the Bible. There's some who would say, well, what about Leviathan or Behemoth or any of these other things? Dragon means dragon. And granted, while it's been pretty much a universal understanding of culture, this is the last thing you'd ever want to walk into or run into in a fictional setting or not. But the picture, as far as something consistent in passages we've read already, not much. Yeah,
0: and so someone would say, well, you're, you're telling me that the, uh, the previous chapters of the Bible, uh, books of the Bible will interpret this. I don't see that. Well when we don't see it explained in the previous books, we can certainly find it explained in the current book that we're in. In In the the current current
1: chapter. Uh, Uh, We won't have time to get to this tonight, but I'll just spoil it for you. This is Revelation 12 and verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. This will be a spoiler for another feature in a moment. And his angels were cast out with him. Now... That is very, very, very plain. Right. You'd have to be trying hard to miss the significance (laughs) of the dragon if you can't be bothered to read five verses later.
0: Right. So? So don't give up the ship if something seems obscure at first. Don't come
1: to the conclusion until you've reached it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, okay, we can ask ourselves this question. The, The dragon is described... ...as a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems... A temporary crown. ...or a temporary crown
1: on his heads. Uh, How in the world are we supposed to make sense of that? Same questions. Has it been mentioned before and is it about to be mentioned later? In reference to before, we don't have much, I'll note that, much on the seven heads bit or the diadems bit, but we do have, and some about the crowns, we do have a lot about the ten horns. This is, again, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, where it's introduced, but fortunately Daniel asked questions, and he's given a direct explanation as to what those horns mean in verse 24 of the same chapter and book. This is Daniel 7:24. The ten horns are ten kings who will arise out from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and he shall subdue three kings. So that would explain why there's seven horns. Well, ten horns, note an introduction. Okay. When we get to Revelation 18, it will also yeah. reiterate this point, but yeah. that will be in a while. Yeah. So the, the the clarification here is he has seven heads
0: and ten horns. This is a reference back to Daniel speaking about the last world-dominating empire viewed as a succession of different beasts, but the final beast even being more terrible than all the other beasts that went before it, correct?
1: And note, it doesn't mention seven heads, it only mentions one, and it doesn't mention seven crowns, but it does mention the horns. And with that explanation, we can take it going forward, as well as into the next chapter, where the seven heads and crowns are explained, and in Revelation chapter 18, five chapters later, where it goes into the explanations of those things.
0: So in essence, what we see from the book of Daniel is this is a picture of Satan coming on the scene with his crowning achievement, the last world-dominating empire uh, that he would be the power behind the throne. He would set this empire up and use it as a staging ground for his knockoff of Jesus, if you will, his counterfeit Messiah, the Antichrist, who would come on the scene.
1: Yeah, it's pretty universally understood that the fourth beast of Daniel is Rome, and that the last day's kingdom will be an attempted revival of Rome, which right. is also detailed in Daniel chapter 2. But all that being aside, and not to get off topic, what we have in this text is a description of Satan, which we can verify literally in five verses, and we can get more details on the things we aren't told within five chapters, if not one. Yeah. But if you finish the book, these things will have an explanation. We can at least have that much confidence.
0: So there's a lot of clarity here instead of confusion. Now, notice it says, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What is this all about?
1: Well, again, has that been mentioned before? As far as the stars of heaven, we have examples of them being used to describe angels. In Job 38 and verse 7, it describes the morning stars singing at creation. We can mention Genesis 1 and verse 16, where stars are used as a picture of stars. And we also have in the book, uh, excuse me, of... um, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 28, where Jesus uses the morning star as a picture of himself. Right. Now, since Jesus obviously isn't an angel that was thrown to the earth by Satan's tail or is a literal ball of nuclear fission, you know, producing Floating radiation in, in the sky, skies, yeah. we have to pick one. So we'd want more information to narrow this down. The good news is, as I mentioned a bit earlier, verses 7 through 9 give us a bit of a spoiler, an explanation. We'll talk more about this next week, but the stars of heaven that Satan threw to the earth, the third of the stars that Satan drew and threw them to the earth, we would conclude that is a picture of the fallen angels. Now, I'm being brief about this because we're going to talk about it more next time. We're going to pretty much cap this off at verse 6, but the point being made is 7 through nine would give us an answer to that.
0: Yeah. And and so we don't have to leave that to the imagination uh, either. So here we see this uh, third of the stars of heaven being thrown to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. What are we talking about here?
1: Well, I don't know from previous verses because we have very few dragons. Let alone attempting to eat newborn babies, or any women who would comfortably not be doing the their in to run into room. La- labor room.: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's a very, very specific situation, so I think it'd be best just to keep reading. Yeah, uh, you know, again, we could talk about how
0: Satan's great desire throughout biblical history was to uh,
1: make sure Messiah never got to the point where he could fulfill his ministry. But we don't have confirmation. You guys are probably ahead of us, but that that's the one that's being born. Yes. We want to get that in the text, not in our assumptions. Yes, exactly. So, so verse 5.
0: So verse 5 goes on to, uh, to give us uh, more information here. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So what does this tell us about this child? It's a boy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the gender reveal party in the Bible, right? Yeah, no blue smoke or fires that follow. But as far as, uh, oh, a child being born, people would say, well, that's a reference to Isaiah 9-6, right? Not necessarily. I'm I'm with you 100% as far as the conclusion, but if this was your you know seminary term paper and that was the only proof you'd get, even if the professor agrees with you, he couldn't pass you because that's not enough to make a case. Right. All we're told is the boy... Was and I don't know if they were unqualified as a biologist to conclude this, that's a joke, but they said it's actually a boy. Right, a male child
0: who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now that's another important piece of information.
1: I understood that reference. Yes. In Psalm 2, and I'll read verse 7, the whole psalm's worth reading as well, but this is uh, David speaking. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord, I thought we were talking about his son, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. So in the passage, we have a verbatim quotation from Psalm 2. Right. Which is about this ruler, this world ruler, who will use his authority given to him directly from God over everything, and also calls him Lord, and also calls him his son. Yes. So that narrows it a little bit more down than a boy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a very important uh, male child. And also note there are further details that would narrow this down in the chapter, but I think we've pretty much gotten the conclusion as well. And also him being caught up to God in his throne, it's the same issue. Oh, well, caught up to God in his throne. uh, Is that uh, Elijah? Is that Enoch? Is that Jesus? Who is it? Well, given the previous sentence, I think we can conclude that it was Jesus. We can go off of what we do know, to clarify what we should or maybe even don't know. Right. And we go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 uh, and following how the
0: disciples saw Jesus rise in a cloud into heaven at his ascension.
1: But again, he wasn't the only one to do that. So what would narrow it down is the clear to interpret the not necessarily unclear, but obscure.
0: Right. Right. So here we see he was caught up to God and his throne, Uh, but uh, again... Uh, We we look at this and we see that by taking this passage, this symbolic passage just a little bit at a time and asking ourselves, okay, do we see this passage explained in the past, illustrated in the Old Testament? Do we see any kind of New Testament references that can shine light on this? Do we see uh, references in the book of Revelation in total and especially in this chapter that can give us insight into this? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And I don't know if this is getting you excited at all, but it excites me because it tells me that revelation isn't the great concealment, it's the great revealment. Uh, God wants us to understand these things. And, you know, the question always comes up, well, okay, why then all this symbolism? And we'll, we'll tackle that in just a moment. Because following this, we can ask ourselves a question, all right, we've got this this way of tackling this in, 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 in focus here. We're looking at this through the lens of other scripture. And we are making the bold claim that this is going to take a passage that caused a lot of people to scratch their heads and go off on incredible flights of fancies and give us a very precise picture of what God has in mind in the sweep in a sense, of redemptive history, how he has dealt with the world, how he brought Jesus into the world, what the spiritual warfare dimensions of this are all about. Great. Does this hold up in future passages? You know, the old saying, don't get cocky, it's going to get rocky. You know, you think some of these things we've explored before are complex. Uh, We're getting into some other things here. Verse 6 says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. What in the world are we dealing
1: with here? Well, let us I guess it hasn't failed us yet. Let's keep using our method. Has this been explained before in Scripture? Not specifically. Again, much like with the woman, much like with the male child, we can note Jesus fled to a place in Egypt in Matthew 2, We could note that Jesus told his followers to flee to the wilderness in Matthew 24 after the abomination that causes desolation, quoting from Daniel. We can note Elijah fled to the wilderness from Jezebel. But as far as a specific example, not enough information is being held if we just look at that one fleeing to the wilderness. Is it going to be explained later in the chapter? Possibly. And again, I'm not saying definitively. Possibly. Verses 13 through 15, which we will not get to tonight, contextualize this a bit better to be taking place at the halfway point of the tribulation. So it may be a reference to Matthew 24, but revelation 13 will clarify this a bit as well. Yeah. However, neither would be definitive. So it would be in the, uh, I guess, file away for further information category. Yeah. And, and I
0: think this is an important thing for us to keep in mind. Um, Sometimes I think we can get so locked into a particular point of view about prophecy that we almost become proud about it. You know, say, well, we understand this and nobody else does. You know, I think it's probably a very good set of assumptions going in that since God is the author of Scripture and his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts— that there are going to be some aspects of what we see here that are going to elude our full understanding until they are fulfilled later on. We can have some good theories about them, but we can't really be dogmatic about it. And, you know, when we come at the scripture from that point of view, we're in really good company. Uh, Daniel himself, after the revelations that he received in his book, uh, said to the angel, sir, what will the end of these things be? And the angel replied, go your way, Daniel, uh, for these things pertain to the future. Many will be purified, made white. Uh, others will, uh, you know, and the, the God is going to be dealing with all of these things. But at the proper time, it's going to be revealed. Daniel was told that it wouldn't be revealed fully in his time. There were certain aspects of it that he could understand, But there were certain aspects of it that he could not understand that would only be understood in the fullness of time going forward. So we need to have that same kind of humble attitude towards these sort of things and not get overly dogmatic about uh, these things. But there are some theories as to this fleeing to the wilderness in the 1,260 days, correct?
1: Well, and just to pause that again for a second, if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of Daniel in the 5th century and ask, okay what can I know about this prophecy that you just laid out in chapter 11? I could note, okay, keep your eye on Greece. That's going to be ugly. But the circumstances surrounding it, the cities that will be involved, I don't know. I will only be able to know when they actually happen. Right? Why would Egypt be mentioned in relationship to these islands, to the northeast? I don't know. It'll be easy for us to say, oh, that was Cleopatra's treaties with Rome and the yep. whole Julius Caesar thing. Oh, well, what about the instance of the cruel king of the north and his conquest through Africa. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes helps that in hindsight, but we wouldn't know if we were living in the 5th century. And that's okay, because what we did need to know is what was Daniel's conclusion in chapter 12. He will bring into judgment the righteous and the wicked. That's the future that concerns me. Right. So continuing on with that point, what, again, can we know? Well, fleeing to the wilderness, similar themes, Having a place prepared by God, here's where more theories come in. Do we see that mentioned in Scripture? God preparing a place for his people. Some people would go to John 14 and verse 2, I prepare a place for you in reference to heaven, and they would say, oh, this is a reference to the mid-tribulation rapture. But we've put it on the table that there are other problems with that, imminency and, of course, First Thessalonians 5 being two of them. But if on the other hand we were to say, oh, well, what about Isaiah chapter 26? This is one of your favorite sections of Scripture, particularly verse 3. Right. But there's other verses in that chapter as well, particularly verses 1 through 20. And there's a mention of the city of strength opening up her gates for her people. Now, again, that's not a definitive prophecy, but it makes some people ask questions. Yeah. And,
0: uh, again, there are those that will even theorize that uh, this place that is going to be prepared is the uh, city of Petra in Jordan. Uh, And some have even gone so far as to leave Bible tracts and Bibles for these individuals that are going to flee there.
1: In Hebrew. Yeah.
0: Do we know this to be the case? No. No, we don't. But, okay. but when it comes to pass, we're going to see that the prophecies were abundantly fulfilled.
1: Yeah, so file that again away for further information. Now, she was provided for and fed for three and a half years. Has that been explained before in Scripture? Yes, that is very specific. Again, First Kings chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, this was with Elijah. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kereth which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and stayed by the brook Kedith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. Talk about Uber. And bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So, In a specific context of the judgment of God taking place. For three and a half years in Israel, Elijah was provided for very unnaturally, but nonetheless. Now, we could use that going forward to say, would that be explained later in the chapter? In light of how it's already been acted out, probably verses 13 through 16 would suggest that this is how God will provide for his people who flee to the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time. Get my finger in the halfway point there. You get the point. (laughs) So if we're asking the question, does this fit? Again, not perfectly because we're not given every detail, but it reminds us enough of certain things that we can say, eh, maybe might need glasses, but that's certainly better than the other ones, if yeah. I was taking an eye exam illustration.
0: Yeah. But uh, again, we've seen that by going slow and allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, this symbolic section of the, of, of the Word of God is not something that we need to be afraid of. Uh, you know, you know the, the, the fact of the matter is, sometimes, uh, as the book of Proverbs says, if we're going to gain God's wisdom, we have to search for it as for hidden treasure. And the, the greatest treasure that you and I have is the Word of God. In Psalm 19, uh, we are told, uh, King David speaking there, that, uh, again, uh, regarding the Word of God, you know, true and just are, are your judgments, O Lord. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Well, why was gold so valuable? Because it's rare you got to go looking for it. It doesn't just, is uh, isn't something you just find in your backyard. And so the Word of God is, in a sense, that same uh, treasure, if you will, that God gives to us. And it's not because it's hidden and out of way, uh, because God is playing games with us. You know, we're pretty much the ones that have been blind to it. Uh, you know, it's interesting as well in the book of Proverbs that it not only talks about searching for uh, wisdom as for hidden treasure and gold, you'll find uh, wisdom and you'll discover the fear of the Lord. The very next chapter, it says that wisdom cries out on the streets, like, here I am. You know, wouldn't it be great to be looking for gold and having the gold go right over here? <laughs> Think about all these people that have searched for the lost Dutchman mine all those years and the superstition mountains. Could you imagine going up there and going, yo, lost Dutchman mine, untold wealth right over here? You know, the Bible says that that kind of wealth is available to us as believers. So, you know, a lot to chew on to begin with here as we get into this symbolic section of Scripture. But a couple things that I think we should uh, give you as takeaways here, kind of the so what of all of this. You know, as we mentioned at the get-go, there was that uh, really interesting uh, article that was written. Uh, by uh, Tom Hughes on the Harbinger website uh, about uh, reasons why pastors don't want to teach the word. And let's hope uh, that uh, the prophetic word uh, is never held back from people in anything that has to do with this fellowship because we're worried about tithes or we're worried about our reputation. But he also said that there were five reasons to teach the prophetic word five reasons why we need to understand what the book of Revelation has to say. Number one, he said it's the ultimate apologetic because you can point to what the Bible says about the last days and the end times. You can point to what people see going on in the news all around them, and you can say, can you believe that the Bible predicted over 1,700 years in advance that the people of Israel would be scattered among all the nations, would be brought back to their land again you know and you can show them in ezekiel chapters 36 all the way up through 39 this regathering of the people of israel and uh, you know where did uh, where did they get this information prophecy is a powerful apologetic not just old testament prophecy that was fulfilled in our 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 day and our time uh, but uh, even pointing people to the fact that jesus fulfilled over 103 old testament prophecies in his first coming so The second thing is, it's a motivator, I believe, to evangelism. If we really take seriously this message that we find in the book of Revelation, uh, we're going to be far less inclined to keep our light under a bushel basket. We're going to realize that the people that we interact with uh, at work, uh, at at home, hopefully not too many in church, but entirely possible, many of them are going to be left behind after the rapture takes place. And boy, you've got to be a cold-hearted cookie indeed to not care about that. And, and so Bible prophecy reminds us that sharing the good news of Jesus is always something that should be front and center in our minds, especially as believers. It's also a great motivation to right living. Our good uh, friend Joel Rosenberg often says, if you're in light of what's going on in Israel right now and the world, if you're planning some major sin in your life, you really might want to put it off. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaches that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the final reason he gave that I thought was really right on was this. We should be uh, about the business of teaching prophecy and sharing the message of prophecy for no greater reason than this. Jesus did it. It was characteristic of his ministry. So we want to be like Jesus. We need to care about Bible prophecy. So three things I would leave you with, and I think have been illustrated in our, our journey through the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the first few verses we've gotten through here is if you want to make sure you understand the message, three things I want to leave you with. Number one, make sure you've got a right heart as you approach the Scripture. Uh, a great prayer to pray uh, and a promise to keep first and foremost in your understanding is in Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3. God makes this offer to us. Come and call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. You know, I think one of the reasons we get so tangled up and lost in uh, our Bible study, not in Revelation, but in general, is we fail to pray. And the Bible is a spiritual book. It is one that the Holy Spirit himself has to reveal to us. So we need to have that right heart. Secondly, we need to ask right questions when we come to the Word of God. If we were going to uh, suggest the right questions someone needs to ask when they explore any part of the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation, what questions should they ask?
1: Has it been mentioned before, and is it about to be?
0: Yeah, and and that's really key. The other ones I would throw in there were the same questions they taught me in journalism school. The classic who, what, where, when, why, and how. If you approach any passage of Scripture and have those questions first and foremost in your mind, and go slow and not read into the text, but allow the text to read out, to you by asking those simple questions. Your Bible study is going to just take off like a rocket. And finally, don't be afraid to use the right resources. Sometimes I think our pride and kind of looking around going, oh, everybody else seems to know what's going on here. I, I better I better fake it till I make it. Uh, boy, what, what a great way to stay in ignorance. You know, I, I remember in uh, some of my classes in school where I either hadn't studied up or it wasn't a strength to me. I'd always try to just kind of make myself really small and hope the teacher didn't call on me and, uh, you know, I could remain in my ignorance. Well, you know, you could either do that and muddle on by and just get passed on and not learn anything, or in, like, some of my math classes, I would take the time to go after school where the teacher would make himself available and get some tutoring So you can really understand what's going on. We have so many great resources at our fingertips that can tutor us in God's Word. Uh, You know, I just think of Dave Guzik's Enduring Word Bible Commentary, just that. If you go through a section of Scripture and it's raising more questions than giving you an answer, man, just go online and look up that passage on Dave's commentary. It's really easy to use and it's really easy to follow. The other thing is five days a week, We do a Bible question and answer program for you guys. It's called A Reason for Hope. And you can go online and ask any question you want. The wonderful thing about the Internet is you can be completely anonymous. Nobody needs to know you're an ignoramus. Just ask the question. The, 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 The only bad question that we say we get on A Reason for Hope, and, well, some of them have been of varying quality, obviously, but the only bad question really is the question that doesn't get asked as far as the Bible is concerned. If you've got a sincere heart and you want to know the word, boy, ask those questions and seize on those right resources. Anything else you'd add to that? All right, why don't you pray for us?
1: Dad, thank you that we can gather together here. It's not a freedom we take for granted, nor a privilege that you've given us your word. The things that you have spoken to us that we can know, we pray that the compass heading would remain the same. You said that the scriptures, we search them because we think in them we have life, but they are they which testify of you. Allow us to live this week with you as our life. It's not only the reason we look forward, but also we look back and recognize from both perspectives you've shown yourself faithful. It's Not easy for us as fallen sinful creatures to remember the things that you've spoken, but I pray that even if it's just one word that we could take to heart this week, it would be from yours. Thank you that you've taken such good care of us, that you continue to. As those in our fellowship that are struggling, you would give them comfort. Those that are stumbling, that you would give them strength and restoration. Those that are seeking your heart, they would find you. And most importantly, those who maybe don't know you, that they would find you, that you you would reveal yourself to them. We pray this all in the name of your son and for the finished work he's done for us on the cross. We thank him. Amen. Amen.